Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. Welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and I'm dedicated to preserving the legacies of Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and countless others upon whose shoulders we all stand today. We aim to empower our listeners with dignity and self-respect and to make an oath to empower at least one child. This show is co-produced by acclaimed educator and author, Ms. Leslie Gibbs, and serves our weekly online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanity. We'd love for you to be a part of our discussion by calling in with your comment or question to 347-324-5552. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Gist of Freedom. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and today we have a special treat. And She's a professor of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, where, of course, my wonderful mother also um, attended. She was born in India and received her doctorate from Columbia University. She's the author of several magnificent books. Her most recent book is The Slave's Cause, Abolition and Artists of American Democracy. Dr. Sinha, I want to know what inspired you to learn about African-American history, number one, and then to become a professor of African-American studies. Okay, well, I actually, um, growing up in India, we heard a lot about the civil rights movement, and there were a lot of connections between um, Mahatma Gandhi's use of nonviolent tactics uh, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, um, you know, Reverend King's um, notion of a nonviolent struggle. So I think all over the world people really connected with the black struggle for freedom um, in the 1960s. And I remember growing up reading Dr. King, Malcolm X. Um, and so I really got interested in the problem of race in the United States, and that kind of led me back to slavery. I see. Well, I noticed that your book uh, does focus on the enslaved Africans here in America suing for their freedom, and many of us are not familiar with this particular movement. You know, we don't realize, you know, they say that uh, the African-American, I'm sorry, the enslaved African was not human, had no rights. Um, We learned about Dred Scott and how he lost his lawsuit, his argument was that because he was brought into free territories, that he couldn't be returned to the bonds of slavery. Mm-hmm. And the judge ruled in the famous Supreme Court decision that the Negro had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. Can you paint a picture for us, please, of Dr. Sinha, and describe the social climate where more than 300 enslaved Africans, then sued and won their freedom? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a lot of the freedom suits, as they were called, you know, black people suing for freedom uh, while they were enslaved, um, 
you know, the Dred Scott story, you can tell that from the sort of narrow perspective, perhaps, of, you know, black people in Missouri who were suing for their freedom based on the fact that they had been taken to free territory. Um, but if you look at the history of freedom suits, you could go right back to the colonial era. You know, the moment Africans were enslaved, uh, they tried every which way to win their freedom. Uh, yeah. It could include, you know, suing your master for freedom because you had been Christianized or you claimed white paternity or, you know, any re- or you had a promise of freedom made to you uh, or you had bought your freedom and your master reneged. Uh, in the last minute, um, or you could rebel against slavery, or you ran away. Uh, what's remarkable to me is how much even newly enslaved Africans use the legal system to fight for their freedom. So the Red Flood decision really had a long prehistory going back to colonial New England, and in, in New England especially, um, by the 18th century, you know, um, during the revolutionary era, a lot of African Americans are suing for freedom because that is one way to win your freedom in, in, in the New England states. Uh, and interestingly enough, in Massachusetts, two slaves, you know, fighting for their freedom and freedom suits end up abolishing slavery in the state because the judges rule that um, slavery is no longer valid. Uh, in the state. So there's a long history to, to Dred Scott. There's a long history to freedom suits that goes right back to the colonial and revolutionary era. Um, but of course, you know, during the time that Dred Scott sued for his freedom in the 1850s, you had a lot of African Americans uh, in the South, especially the border South, uh, Missouri. Um, a recent historian has discovered uh, numbers, hundreds of these suits uh, being uh, fought in, in St. Louis. So that Red Scott was not unique, as we normally say, um, you know, when he was sued for his freedom, he and his wife, Harriet Scott, when they sued for their freedom, they were doing what a lot of um, black people were doing in St. Louis at that time. Um, of course, Dred Scott becomes important because his case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And Chief Justice Tony, uh, Roger Tony, probably made one of the most uh, infamous decisions in uh, the history of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, when he used the Dred Scott decision to say basically that Dred Scott had no standing to sue for his freedom because he was not a citizen uh, and that black people were simply not eligible for U.S. citizenship and that the founding fathers had never envisioned them to be citizens of this country. And he used this 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 decision also to say that, you know, that... that um, the federal government could not restrict the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. Um, this is the the reason why Dred Scott is suing for his freedom. He says that he has been taken to, to free territory, and therefore mm-hmm. he is free. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think African Americans and their allies, anti-slavery and abolitionist allies, many times use the law, use the fact that the nation was half slave, half free, um, that there were northern states where they could contest their freedom in the courts in ways perhaps sometimes they couldn't even in the south. Um, 
So so this was, you know, Dred Scott was really an end to this long history of, of suing for your freedom, suing your master for your freedom on various grounds. Um, and Dred Scott is, comes at the end of that where basically the Supreme Court closes that avenue for black people and says, you know, you can't even sue for your freedom because a black bound to respect. Um, that was, you know, his... There was an egregious statement that Tony made that made the decision particularly infamous to black people and to, to abolitionists. Yes, and so today we have African Americans and many people of color under political siege with the stop and frisk, the stand mm-hmm. and ramp, and the immigration law. And if we understand all of the legal challenges that many of these enslaved and free uh, African Americans mm-hmm we're up against in the 1800s, then we should be able to understand, respect, and emulate those courageous enslaved litigants. And so I thank you so much for your, you know, your book is just really a great contribution to history. Now, there were two federal fugitive laws that were created in 1793 and modified Mm -hmm. in 1850. Can you explain, please, the difference between these two laws and the reason why it was modified in 1850? Yes, um, in 1793, when the first Fugitive uh, Slave Act is passed, it is passed to implement the Fugitive Slave Call Clause of the U.S. Constitution that really gives um, southern laws of slavery uh, what we call extraterritoriality in the North, meaning even though the North has abolished slavery, it allows slaveholders to claim fugitive slaves in northern states and territories. Um, and this, of course, creates a problem, and it even you know, presents an opening for African Americans um, to fight against these fugitive slave renditions. And many times there was a very sort of narrow line dividing fugitive slave renditions from the north with the kidnapping of free black people from the north into slavery uh, into the south. And the 1793 law actually led to many instances of free blacks being kidnapped into slavery. Um, And so many of the early abolition societies and African-American leaders started fighting against these laws, petitioning state legislatures in the North uh, to prevent, you know, sort of miscarriage of justice. And so northern states also started passing laws, personal liberty laws that would actually um, prevent the kidnapping of free black people or give uh, people suspected of being fugitive slaves a trial by jury, um, you know, give them certain protections and rights within the legal system. Um, And, of course, you know, the numbers of slaves who voted with their feet, especially from the border south, kept increasing. And with Mm -hmm. the rise of the abolition movement, there were even abolitionists who were getting deeply involved in in assisting uh, African-Americans and assisting fugitive slaves. Um, So the reason why a new law is passed in 1850 is because there are slaves who are voting with their feet, who are running away from their masters, you know, making clear uh, that they resist slavery. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the growth of the abolitionist movement and the fact that there are free black communities all over the North that would assist these fugitives um, makes it that much more difficult for slaveholders to to pursue their slaves. 
So the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, which is uh, passed as kind of a compromise between the North and the South, is part of a larger compromise package. But the reason why they pass a new law is because uh, black people are resisting slavery. They are running away from slavery in larger numbers. And this is upsetting to many slaveholders, especially those in the border South states, the states, slave states that border the, the free states. Um, and so this becomes a pro-slavery measure in this compromise package. What's different about this law is that it, it actually uh, compels, um, firstly, it disallows many of the personal liberty laws in the North that were passed before, but it actually compels Northern white citizens to act like slave patrollers virtually, uh, meaning a federal marshal could come into a Northern community and ask all the adult white men, you know, former posse comitatus, and force them to assist him. In, uh, in rendering a fugitive slave back to his master or to a slave catcher. And um, so this was something new. Uh, it, it put into place a federal mechanism to actually enforce the fugitive slave clause. It was far more stringent than even the 1793 law, and it did away with all the protections that northern states had passed uh, for free black people or for any black person suspected of being a fugitive slave, and it involved northern whites, um, and it involved federal marshals. It made it into a kind of a task of the federal government, uh, which uh, was something new. Uh, it allowed also a fugitive slave not to be taken to a, uh, to a northern courtroom, but to actually be submitted in front of a federal commissioner, who, interestingly enough, got $5 if he said that the fugitive slave was not a slave or the suspected slave was not a slave, but got $10 if he said that it was, a, that the person was a slave. So, you know, the injustice was kind of written into the law and the excuse was that more paperwork was required uh, for a slave to be sent back to the South. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it was a mm. terrible law. It was, it was a... In the 1850s, bringing the future slave law and kind of ending with the Dred Scott decision was a terrible decade in terms of black rights uh, and the black fight for, for citizenship and racial equality in this country. Right, right. And you can just imagine all of the, the psychological trauma endured. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when we look at the film 12 Years a Slave, an, ad- an adaptation of his mm-hmm. book, how did the Liberty Laws actually affect Solomon Northup? We know his wife used the Liberty Laws to petition the governor of New York for his freedom. Right. Um, well, you know, Sol- Solomon Northup, you know, he was kidnapped into slavery. Yeah. So in a way, he, uh, his kidnapping was, was illegal uh, was a, by any law, even by slave law. You could not just kidnap a free black person. Uh, into freedom, uh, but the position of black people was so tenuous at that time because over 90% of the black population is enslaved. You have a very tiny free black community in the in the United States at that time. So the presumption is that if a person is black, they could be suspected of being uh, a slave or a runaway slave. And um, so Solomon Northrop is able to 
fight for his freedom or his family is able to fight for his freedom mainly by by sort of proving that he is free and he has been kidnapped. Um, and they are able to actually enforce that in the South even um, because as long as you could produce papers and produce evidence that this person is a free black person from the North, um, then in fact that person would need to be sent back. Um, now, there were many northern free blacks who were not as lucky, who got kidnapped and sold into slavery uh, and had no allies and no person or no, you know, were lost to slavery, literally. Um, but but Northrop is lucky because um, his family doesn't give up and he is able to get word out, uh, you know, through this, this Canadian carpenter whom he meets. He's able to send a letter back home telling them where he is. Uh, that was highly unusual. And if you saw the film, you see his struggles and just sort of even trying to get a paper and pen to write uh, right, and give word about where he is. Um, and, and what's so dramatic about that story, of course, is that it was a real story. There was Solomon right. Northam. This actually happened to him. And when he publishes his narrative, uh, in the North, uh, like Frederick Douglass's narrative, it, it's a bestseller, and people in the North are appalled that this can happen um, to a to a free black person. Um, so the the actions and the narratives of black people are really important to um, creating a sentiment against slavery. Uh, and many of these slave narratives preceded. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in fact, her novel is inspired mainly by these slave narratives that were written before she wrote her novel and before that became an international bestseller a year yes, later. Yes, yes. Yeah. You're listening online at www.blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and we're so honored to have our very special guest, with us this evening, Dr. Manisha Sinha. Dr. Manisha, I saw your presentation on C-SPAN. It was excellent. And you mentioned that President Lincoln's administration was the first to execute those whites who were unlawfully stealing these African men, women, and children after the Atlantic slave trade was prohibited in 1803. Um, However, you know, of course, they were still being enslaved up until been, you know, early 1900s, you know, before the time. Right. Can you explain, give us a little bit of, um, of explanation about that? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the United States and Britain abolished the African slave trade in 1808, uh, but there were many instances of illegal importations of Africans to the United States um, after that. Um, because remember, slavery is a growing institution. Um, there is a prolific domestic slave trade in the U.S. where a lot of people are sold down the river, you know, literally, uh, from the older slave states of Virginia, South Carolina, to the new cotton states uh, in the Southwest. Um, but we do know that there were a lot of instances of illegal trading. And in 1820, the U.S. government passed a law that equated the African slave trade, not the domestic slave trade between the southern states that was still legal, but the African, the foreign slave trade, they called it piracy. And the punishment for piracy, of course, is is death. It's a death sentence. Um, But somehow that was never really implemented. 
um, throughout the antebellum period, even though we have evidence that the United States government did try to suppress the illegal slave trade, uh, but many times they got into controversies with Britain over the suppression of the illegal slave trade because they had no treaty with the United States and many slave traders would simply fly the American flag in order to evade the British uh, patrols in Africa. They were patrolling the coast of Africa for instances of slave trading. Um, so even the slave trade going into Cuba and Brazil that still had slavery then um, was, you know, uh, Americans were participating in it and many times using the U.S. flag uh, to shield their illegal activities. Uh, so all of this is happening in the antebellum period. And for much of the period, the federal government, um, even though it opposes the slave trade and, um, you know, there are times in the 1850s where many uh, slaveholders in Alabama, Louisiana, and South Carolina, and Georgia are actually asking for the African slave trade to be legalized. Um, and they even, imp you know, import illegally Africans. Uh, from Africa and get away with it. You know, they're not prosecuted. Uh, the Buchanan administration has, you know, some cases against them, but the juries in the South just let them go scot-free. So there's open violation of the African slave trade. There are two, three open violations of it um, that are quite well known. Um, but once the Lincoln administration is in power, for the first time you have not an abolitionist, but an anti-slavery government in power. Uh, so that is the first time when they actually implement uh, the piracy law of 1820. It's the first instance where an American was hanged uh, for um, participating. He's the captain of a ship for you know, participating in the African slave trade. And the only time that happens is under the Lincoln administration. And that's not a coincidence, you know, because for the first time you have an anti-slavery precedent, um, there's at least some attempt to, to enforce the law. Um, and because, you know, during the Civil War, um, everyone realizes in a way that, uh, that slavery is the cause of the war and that slavery, uh, that if the Union wins, then slavery is, is, is going to be done away with, at least by the yeah. middle of the war. Everyone knows that. So, so that was what happened. And so that was the only instance in which a white American was hanged for participating in the African slave trade. And the prosecution was, in fact, done under the Lincoln administration. Well, now, what about the, uh, the abolitionists, the African-American abolitionist leaders? Were there, were there any involved in the several hundred lawsuits? Um, that were waged by the enslaved Africans during this time? Well, um, yes. Uh, if then they were mainly, you know, you would say that there were some landmark cases uh, in the North uh, where black and white abolitionists got involved. Uh, one of the famous cases um, was the, the Latimer case in which um, uh, abolitionists, both black and white, really mobilized uh, in Boston and were able to um, to win the freedom of George Latimer. Um, his master goes back to Virginia without Latimer, and George Latimer himself becomes an abolitionist um, and joins the movement. So there were such instances. Uh, but a lot of these other freedom suits that were 
you know, uh, conducted in the South were many mm-hmm. times done by enslaved black people, free black people who assisted them, and a few mm-hmm. maybe some white anti-slavery uh, allies or sometimes some patrons. Uh, but it really shows that the fight for freedom in uh, or the fight against slavery in the South was really being waged by, by black people themselves, enslaved black people themselves, uh, yeah, because yeah. they couldn't formally join the abolition movement there, uh, because that would be seen deemed criminal. You know, they could lose right. their lives to that. Um, well, tell me about tell me about Amistad and say Frederick Douglass, who contemplated yeah. leaving the country, and even those who decide who decided to stay and fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that that was such such a, a great sacrifice and challenge. You know, in comparison to the challenges that we have today. And and then understanding mm-hmm. the importance of of history, you know, understanding all of those shoulders upon whom we stand today. All Absolutely. of those shoulders upon whom we stand today. Yeah. You, you know, know, a lot so of I the issues. Salute, I salute. Yeah. You know, a lot of the issues that we deal with today have a very long prehistory, and people forget that the black tradition of protest is a very long tradition yeah. uh, of protest. And that many of the issues that we deal with today in terms of mass incarceration, you know, criminalization in the eyes of the law, um, you know, uh, inequality before law, you know, differential uh, treatment uh, in law and by custom, um, all these have very long roots in American history. And, you know, African Americans have been fighting against this for, uh, for centuries. Uh, and every new age presents new problems. Um, yeah, yeah. The you know problem of racism has to be confronted anew. And I think uh, what's remarkable in terms, at least in my understanding of Black history, is that that such uh, you know um, um, extreme instances of oppression did not lead people to just sort of sit back and become completely victimized. That people fought back. Uh, with whatever tools they had yeah. at hand, and uh, and that that's really, I think, the legacy of the black abolitionists and all those people who fought against it, virtually impossible odds. Uh, and I think um, if one is aware of that history, then one, you know, it gives one some hope and it gives one some um, sort of ability to think about, you know, confronting our problems today. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz. We just had a phenomenal guest with us this evening, and we're going to have to have her back, Dr. Manisha Sinha. Now, can you give us some information about your book and a brief uh, a, a synopsis of your other upcoming projects or exciting recent works that we can, so that we can better support you? Oh, thank you. Uh, well, this this book that I have written on abolition, I've been writing it for a long time, and um, I'm hoping that that book will be out. This is my, that's my second book. I hopefully it'll be out in print next year. Uh, and what it does is it, it really retells the history of abolition by centering African Americans in that story. I mean, for a long time, the abolitionist movement has been portrayed mainly as a middle class white northern movement and I think people forget how central black people both enslaved and free were to that protest movement 
Um, you know, in a way, it was kind of a 19th century counterpart to the civil rights movement. So I really wanted to rewrite the history of abolition through the perspectives of black people. Um, and hopefully that book will be out next year, The History of Abolition from the American Revolution to the Civil War. So it's a, it's a huge book. Um, and I hope, you know, to, to do a couple of new projects on um, the Civil War, a, a collection of essays on the Civil War and emancipation. I've written um, a little bit also on emancipation during the Civil War and argued that we must understand emancipation as a process that involved many actors. And I think yes. you saw the, the talk at C-SPAN was part of that, you know, yes. uh, a new kind of understanding of emancipation. Um, and then eventually I hope to write a book on Reconstruction, which is the period um, that followed uh, the Civil War when for a very brief time um, this country experimented with and established uh, an interracial democracy. Um, and uh, really that was overthrown. Um, yeah. And you had segregation and lynching and sharecropping and disfranchisement and mm -hmm. convict mm -hmm. labor and debt peonage, you know, that nightmare that followed slavery uh, of Jim Crow. Um, so I want to write about that brief period of Reconstruction, too, uh, when now, if, if, um, if we things wanted, seemed possible. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Well, I'm no, sorry. go ahead. If, our, if we have our listeners who want to contact you, how can they best contact you, and where can they find your book? Well, you, if you go to Amazon and you, you type my name, you will get my books. And I think what would interest your listeners the most is um, a, a two-volume documentary history uh, that a colleague of mine in Afro-American Studies, uh, John Bracey, and I did uh, which contains all the most, some of the most important documents in African American history, and it's from the slave trade uh, right until the 21st century. So it has, uh, you know, parts of slave narratives. For instance, it has um, an excerpt also of 12 Years of Slave. I taught that narrative. I've taught that narrative for 10 years, and now there's a movie on it. Um, but there are other slave narratives and and other documents dealing with black history that are not so well known. Um, yeah. It's a two-volume um, book called African -American. American Mosaic. Yeah. yeah. And I think that history from the African slave trade to the 21st century, correct? Right. Okay. I think that okay. would uh, would interest your listeners the most. You can just get that. You can buy that even on Amazon. Uh, even get used copies <laughs> that are not okay. that expensive. Um, okay. And uh, and then I wrote a book uh, on um, secession and pro-slavery ideology, showing how anti-democratic slaveholders were, uh, that the people who really represented a democratic tradition in this country were African Americans, the enslaved. Um, and that book um, came out in 2000. And uh, so that's, you know, for anyone who's interested in Southern history and looking at how slaveholders tried to defend slavery, um, that is another book uh, that I've written. There's another smaller book um, uh, called um, The Abolitionist Imagination um, that has an essay by me. Um, but I would say... Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, people might want to wait for the book on abolition that hopefully will come out from Yale University Press 
uh, next year, uh, late two, 2014. And uh, that book um, really looks at this black activist tradition within the abolition movement. I think that yeah. would interest your listeners too. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's really been such an honor and a joy. Um, I hope to get you back on again. Um, uh, is there a website or anything or any parting words that you'd like to give to our, our listeners? Um, sure. I mean, uh, people can, you know, I, I teach at the University of Massachusetts Amherst uh, and Afro-American Studies, and you could go to the Afro-American Studies website at UMass Amherst. Uh, we are very proud of our department. It's um, one of the oldest black studies departments in this country. It had one of the first PhD programs in black studies, um, and you can read about the history of our department and uh, about the faculty, including me, in Afro-American studies. We are called the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of African-American Studies, and we teach black history and the tradition of the great black um, scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. And um, so I would encourage your listeners to 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 go online to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and then go to our department website, uh, the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of African-American Studies. It's right under A. Okay. Um, and they would, they would uh, I think, and you would also see uh, the numbers of graduates we've had from our department in black studies uh, and our current students, graduate students. Um, uh, last year we got an award, no, not last year, this year actually, early this year in January we got an award from the American Historical Association for having the best placement of minority historians throughout the country uh, in academia, in universities. So I think if your listeners well, are interested, they can, they can look at that. That's wonderful. That's terrific. Thank you so much. I would like to thank everyone for listening to The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith, where we celebrate the African-American experience. Until the next time, this is your sister, Ilyasa Shabazz, and please know I am here simply because I love you. Thank you for tuning in.